Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. We're going to continue the message that we started two weeks ago. Interrupted last week as I was gone. I'm thankful for Rob's faithful exposition of the word and your reception to him. This week we'll continue. We are fairly opinionated people. We generally don't have a problem sharing what we think about a variety of different issues or circumstances. We generally have no problem sharing our views on politics, on sports, on health, on our jobs. But there is one area in which we tend not to be very opinionated at all. That's the gospel. We tend to be rather silent about the gospel. We're very quick to talk about everything else and very slow to speak about the gospel. I've often wondered why that is. And I've concluded that I think the answer is, while we might not like to admit it, we're ashamed of it. We're ashamed of the gospel because it's awkward. It's messy. It tells people that they're not good. And so we don't share it. We don't talk about it. We're passionate about all kinds of things, but we tend not to be passionate about the gospel. But this is not a new problem. This is not unique to us in this time and place. In fact, this has been the case from the very beginning. And so even in the early church, Paul had to encourage them and even his protege, Timothy, not to be ashamed of the gospel. And this is what he does in our section that we're going to continue today. So let's look at verses 8 through the end of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy 1. Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been made manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed, and am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygalius and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. At the outset of the text, Paul pleads with Timothy, Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel. Not to be disgraced by it. Why would he say this? Well, it's not a new problem. We all face this challenge of being ashamed of the gospel. Because as Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 1, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are believing and are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, a folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, the the world does not see the gospel as helpful. The world sees the gospel as hateful and unloving. Who are we to tell others that their life choices are wicked and that they'll end up in eternal damnation? Who are you to judge people like that? The gospel does not make us popular, but will increasingly lead to rejection and soon to real persecution. And so, like Paul, I call you, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of his people. How how then can we live in a way that's not ashamed of the gospel? How can we accomplish that? Well, in this text, Paul gives us three marks of people who stand for truth and are not ashamed. Three marks that must be true of those and us who are willing and eager to take on. Two weeks ago, we began the first mark. We didn't make a whole lot of progress, but today we'll make more progress. The first mark of those who are not ashamed of the gospel is that they stand or share in suffering. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We're to share in evil together, to take on our share. This word appears only here in the New Testament and once again in chapter two, verse three. And it's a word that seems to have been invented by Paul. He combines three words together, which mean to suffer evil with. The word for suffer, the word evil, and the word with. So it means to suffer evil with God. That's not unusual that we'll suffer. In fact, the time that we have experienced is unusual. Last few hundred years where Christians have not suffered for the gospel has been, has been unusual. It's not the norm. Instead, we're told by Christ in John 13, or John 16, verse 33, I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace in the world You will have tribulation. Paul is going to tell us in chapter 3, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In Acts 5, we find that the disciples counted themselves worthy. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for God's name. See, the gospel runs counter to the worldview of of the world around us. The gospel is not popular because it goes against everything that they say. The world likes to say that man is basically good. They like to say things like there are no bad people. Society made them that way. Or, or the, the children are bad because, because they've not been given a chance. While the gospel tells us that all men are totally depraved. There are no good people. In fact, Paul says very clearly in Romans 3, there is none righteous Not even one. Society claims that you can work to better yourself. Be who you are. Be true to yourself. 
While the gospel states that there is no salvation in any other name under heaven, only through Christ. Society will claim that truth is up to you or whoever yells the loudest gets to determine truth. You determine what makes you happy. But the gospel proclaims that God is truth. So the world hates the gospel and it hates those who proclaim it. And the suffering for Christ is not easy. It's not preferable. It's not comfortable. It's not desirable. But when it comes, how can we prepare for it? How can we face it when we when it comes? How can we even thrive in the middle of this suffering? Well, Paul gives us three reminders. We saw the first one two weeks ago. We need to remember the gospel. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And Paul reminds us that the gospel is not weakness. Rather, it is the power of God. It echoes the sentiment in Romans one. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so over the next few verses, Paul rehearses again for us the gospel. He reminds us that it is God who saves us. We also see that he called us and granted us grace before the ages began. We're saved for the purpose of God. We see throughout scripture that this purpose is for the glory of God's grace. This grace was made known in Christ that has two effects on the believers and on the sinful world. The first one is that God abolished death through Christ. He, he rendered it inoperative. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we don't have to fear death. Because of salvation in Christ, death is no longer to be feared. It's lost its sting. And the second effect is that the, the, he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's the message of the gospel, that because Jesus lives, you will live. We can endure suffering for the gospel by remembering the gospel itself, because it's all about life, true life, eternal life. They can only hurt our mortal body. They cannot separate us from our salvation. Eternity awaits, and it's going to be glorious. This world is dying. This world is temporary. So we ought not live for this world. We ought not strive for this world. We ought not be ashamed of eternity, because eternity is what lasts. The opinion of this world does not matter. Yet this salvation is more than mere forgiveness. It's more than simply getting out of hell. The salvation is also a call to holiness. Verse 9 tells us, He saved us and called us to a holy calling. This echoes what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. When we truly understand the gospel and we place our confidence in God, we have the power to walk worthy of the Lord. And we seek to please him in every aspect of our life, bearing fruits in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Colossians 1, 10 and 11. 
And when we remember the gospel, we strive for holiness. Yet when we remember the gospel and we strive for holiness, we encounter the power of God. We gain the ability to suffer rightly for the cause of Christ. We gain the ability to do what's right because the gospel is the power of God. And so don't fear suffering for God. Don't fear persecution. So that often it saddens me every election season when I hear people say, don't you know if so-and-so wins, we'll suffer. It's okay. Suffering is the lot of the believer for the gospel. Don't fear it. Remember the gospel. Now we enter new material. Secondly, we are to remember our calling. Remember our calling. This is verse 11. He says, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. God, Paul, God called Paul to suffer for the gospel as a preacher an apostle and a teacher. Now, you and I have not been called as an apostle. And God may not have called you as a preacher or a teacher, but God has called you to proclaim the gospel. God has called you to himself. And he has called you to be his child. And he will not forget the ones he called. He will not forget the ones he has chosen he did not call you to leave you. He did not call you to forget you. He called you for his glorious purpose. And it may be that he has called you to suffer for his name. In Acts 5, the apostles were jailed for preaching the gospel. That night, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit miraculously released them from prison. So in the morning... They returned to the temple and began preaching again. Well, finding the jail empty, the leaders then found the apostle in the temple preaching again, and they rearrested them. They beat them for their disobedience. They told them, you need to stop preaching. We'll let you go if you stop preaching. And they responded that they would not. And Acts 5.41 says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You see, they recognized their calling. Their calling was not a calling to change society. Their calling was not a political calling to gain power in the country or to get the right people in the right places. Their calling was to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Let me be blunt. If we were even a fraction as passionate about proclaiming the gospel of Christ and fulfilling our calling as Christians, as we were about our positions about COVID or about our positions about politics or about our jobs, God would change this country. But we're ashamed of the gospel. We need to remember our calling. Remember our calling. Rather than posting on Facebook your opinion about what's happening, how about if you post on Facebook the gospel? Rather than sharing with your neighbors and your friends how much you hate the decisions our government has made, you shared with your friends how great your God is. Remember 
your calling. When you remember your calling, you can suffer for the cause of Christ. Third, we need to remember our God. Why would we do this? He says, verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed for I know whom I've believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul encourages us not to be ashamed of the gospel, but he's not encouraging us something which he is not doing himself. He says, I am not ashamed. Timothy, believer, I'm not calling you to not be ashamed while I'm standing ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Why? He was not ashamed because he remembered his God. He was convinced that God is able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. I actually like the, the King James translation of this verse a little better. It says, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I've believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Paul had committed his life, his reputation, his legacy, his ministry to God. And he was convinced that God would not let him down. In spite of all the world told him. In spite of all the shame and suffering he endured. He was convinced that he would stand before God and be declared blameless. The world called him foolish. The world called him crazy. The world called him a hateful bigot, but he was not ashamed because he was convinced that God would keep him. That one day he would stand before God and hear him say, well done. He was convinced that God is greater than the world. He was convinced, as was the Apostle John, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Your God is great and your God is awesome. Your God is overwhelming. As Habakkuk faced trial and persecution at the hands of the Babylonians, he stated, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Real trial was here. Yet... I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon me, upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He was able to do this because he remembered who God is. Chapter 3 of Habakkuk is a textbook about God. He reminds us that God is radiant in splendor. Our God is no small, insignificant being our God cannot be replicated in a statue or in an image or even in our imagination. No construct can even begin to describe the indescribable glory of our gods. 
This means that God is not just great, not just a greater being than us, as if he were some kind of Superman. No, God is completely different in kind altogether. So far surpassing anything we could ever imagine. That's why Deuteronomy 4 and Hebrews 12 describe God as a consuming fire. He reminds us, Habakkuk reminds us that our God controls nature. Like the great Colossus towering over the mountain peaks, God measures the earth, claiming the right of dominion inherent in himself as creator. He pictures him as uh, as a God with the glance of his eye, his sovereignty causing the very world to change. The mountains, the symbols of grandeur and permanence and security in the earth are revealed as frail and impermanent. Before God's might, they're shattered and prostrated. The eternal hills grovel in dust, flattened before the Lord's majesty. Habakkuk reminds us that God controls the nations. We're reminded that God does not appear simply as a brilliant specter in which we ought to inspire awe. He comes as an active person, powerfully and awesomely working to establish supremacy among the nations. The nations have attempted to throw off the yoke of God's reign. They rage against God. But all their efforts are in vain because God's kingdom is secure. He sits enthroned in radiant splendor. And he'll reign over all nations, people, tribes, and tongues for all eternity. It reminds us that this rulership of God is no arbitrary or selfish rule. God's radiant majesty and power is effective. God is the defender of his people. This majestic, magnificent, radiant, spectacular God takes a personal interest in you. No nation can stand against him when he comes to accomplish salvation for his people. You know, often we find ourselves disturbed because we see no visible power as strong as the circumstances around us. We feel helpless, frustrated, angry as government makes decisions that we can't thwart. But God's sovereign power works for us. And this working is no small thing. Habakkuk states that he will thresh the nations, completely sifting them out. He works for our salvation and in doing this, he will utterly crush the wicked. So we, as we face uncertain persecution, as we face the challenges coming, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be willing to share in suffering. Because your God is greater than the world and nothing can separate you from him. That's what Paul said in, me, what Paul said in Romans 8. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those who are not ashamed of the gospel share in the sufferings for the gospel. They don't fear it. They don't run from it. They don't cry about it. They don't decry it. They embrace it because they remember the gospel. They remember their calling. And they remember their God. 
The second mark of those who are not ashamed of the gospel is that they stand in Scripture. They stand in Scripture. He says in verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul begins this challenge to Timothy and to us by saying, follow right teaching. Follow the pattern of sound words you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You see, what you put in is what comes out. What you listen to is what you will become. So it is vital that you listen to right teaching. There's a lot today that labels itself as Christian. But much of what you find through Christian entertainment for preaching is not sound teaching. Note that Paul states we're to follow the pattern of sound words. We must sure, we must be sure that the, the preaching and the teaching we listen to is sound. How can you know? How can you know if what you're listening to or reading is right and sound? Well, Paul informs us. Timothy had heard it from Paul in faith and love that are in Christ. You see, the sound words were the ones like the ones given to Paul by God. In other words, they're recorded for us in the word of God. We need to follow the word. He states that they're in faith and love in Christ Jesus. You must be sure that the messages you hear are faithful to the word of God. The calling of the preacher is not to share his opinions. The calling of the preacher is not to be entertaining. The calling of the preacher is to be faithful to the word of God. In a couple chapters, Paul makes this challenge to Timothy and to all preachers in 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Well, that day's arrived. The day has arrived in which the average person is not interested in the word of God. They find the preaching and the teaching of the word of God to be boring. I mean, all he does is just talk about the Bible. And like Wednesday night, coming on Wednesday night and just like sitting there and, and studying the Bible. And, and that's it. I mean, this, it's just boring. They find it boring. They want to be encouraged. They want to feel good. They want to have their ears tickled. But the calling of the church is to be faithful to sound words, not feel-good words. Further, the church is to follow the pattern of these sound words. Like a child tracing a picture, the life pattern of the Christian is to trace the word of God. The purpose of preaching and teaching is life change. 
The purpose of your study is life change. It's not for you to continue as you are, but to grow in your walk with God. Christians obey the Bible because they're not ashamed of it. If you're going to stand for truth, you have to know the truth. And to know the truth, you have to know the word. If you're going to stand for truth, you have to love the truth. If you're going to stand for truth, you have to live the truth. And all this means that you invest yourself in the right teaching, the word of God, in obedience to it. Secondly, we are to guard the good deposit. He says, guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. The day has arrived in which the church is not too interested in the truth. The church is very interested in authentic living and showing God's love or living life together. They love these slogans. But the church is not very interested in the truth. One man put it this way. What is particularly tragic about the many scandals that have plagued evangelicalism today is the fact that so many churches and so many individuals who call themselves Christian have little concern for biblical truth and biblical standards of living. In the name of love, understanding, and peace within the church and with society, almost any theology is accepted, or at least not challenged, no matter how much it may contradict Scripture. If the church does not guard and protect the truth, who will? In reality, this is the calling of the church. We are called to guard the deposit entrusted to us. What is this deposit? Well, in the context, it is evident that this deposit is the gospel entrusted to the church to proclaim. And we are to guard it. We must guard this deposit because it will come under attack. At every turn, the world attacks the gospel. The world, the gospel proclaims that man is dead in trespasses and sins, and the world calls the gospel hateful for such statements. The gospel proclaims that Jesus died to take our sin. The world proclaims that if Jesus even existed, maybe he died as an example. The gospel proclaims that we must surrender our lives to God as Lord if we are to be saved. The world proclaims that we are our own boss. We are to own our lives and live authentic to ourselves. And in every way, the world sees the gospel as bigoted and hateful. And sadly, the church has downgraded the gospel in an, in an effort to make Christianity more palatable. It's moved away from the gospel. No longer does the church speak of God's wrath or of eternal hell. Rather, the church speaks about how God wants you to live a full life. No longer does the church speak about submission to Christ, but rather portrays it as though God submits to us and our whims and our desires. The church is called to protect the gospel, to guard it against all that would demean it and cheapen it. 
We're not called to make it more palatable, but to proclaim it as God gave it and to proclaim it boldly. But you'll not protect it if you're ashamed of it. The mark of those who are not ashamed of the gospel is that they stand in the word. Do you stand in the word? Or is it something that you could take or leave? Do you love the word? Or is it only something you listen to for an hour on Sunday? Do you view the teaching and study of the word as boring or as life-giving? Christians, love the word. If you don't love the word, then frankly, you need to check your salvation. But you're not alone in this battle. Because the final mark of those who are not ashamed of the gospel is that they stand with the saints. In this section, Paul gives an example of false friends and true friends. If you are not ashamed of the gospel, it is vital that you surround yourself with true friends, not with fake ones. Further, it's vital that you be a true friend yourself. Paul begins with examples of false friends in verse 15. You are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygalius and Hermogenes. In his, first, in his final missionary journey, Paul was arrested along the way. And using hyperbole, Paul states that all in Asia, Asia Minor, that area of Galatia, turned away from him. As the persecution became intense, as the risks became real, these false friends turned their back on Paul. Paul mentions two of them by name. We don't know exactly who these men are. Most likely they're leaders of some of the churches in Galatia. But the point is that they were only there for the good times. When the, when the times became inconvenient or tough, they turned their back. Now that's the picture of modern friendship. Friends exist for my use. When they're no longer useful to me, well, then I'm done with them. I can turn my back on them and forget them. Don't be that kind of friend. And if your friends are marked by this, you need new friends. Instead, we ought to be true friends. We see this in verses 16 to 18. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. See, Onesiphorus was not like the others. When he learned that Paul had been arrested and thrown into prison, he traveled to Rome and began to search for Paul. He was not ashamed of the gospel. He was not ashamed of those suffering for the gospel. He was willing to put himself in harm's way for the gospel. True Christian friends will expend themselves for one another. They will sacrifice for one another because their friendship is based on the gospel. And it's a lot easier to stand for the gospel when you're not alone. In these dark days, it is vital that we stand together. We can't let selfishness 
or petty differences divide us. It's vital that we act with humility and grace and servanthood towards one another. It's vital that we build our friendships and our relationships around the gospel. As the days get darker, we will need each other more. Two weeks ago, Burger King declared that for every chicken sandwich they sold, they would donate a portion of the funds to an LGBTQ advocacy group. And in that announcement, they actually took a swipe at Chick-fil-A for standing as a corporation for the truth of the word. A CNN made this comment. They would even make these donations on Sunday. A not-so-subtle dig at rival Chick-fil-A. Here's the point of that. If fast food restaurants are not being exempted from the attack on the gospel, why would the church or we be exempted from these attacks? When secularism has invaded even the drive through it has invaded the entire culture. Often Christians have been told, don't worry about secularism. It just says that they don't want religion in the secular sphere. You can worship it on your own. That's fine. But that's not true at all. They want complete surrender. This means that we will face regular choices regarding our faith and the gospel. Will we speak up for truth? Or will we stand in awkward silence? Will we choose to love the word, to study the word, and to live the word? Or will we hide our faith? Will will we be content to be companions of those who are ashamed of the gospel? Or will we be companions of those that love the gospel? Will we value the right preaching and teaching of the word? Or will we desire shorter, watered down, feel good, moral ditties? In short, are you ashamed of the gospel? You don't need to be. You don't need to be. It is the power of God. It is the answer to every ill Of society. And you hold the key. So don't fear suffering. Don't fear persecution. Don't fear weirdness. Love the word. Value the word. It is what will last. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Four so what's to walk away with. Four short statements. One. Learn the gospel. You have to know it. If all you're doing is sitting in a pew on Sunday morning, you're not learning the gospel. It's not enough. You have to study it for yourself every day. Wednesdays, we study the word. Sunday school, we study the word. Then Tuesday morning, we study the word. Opportunities abound. You have to learn the gospel. And if you're not interested in learning the gospel, you have to question whether or not you're even a person of the gospel.
Secondly, love the gospel. Love it. The more you learn it, the more you'll love it. Third, live the gospel. Let the word drive everything you do. No more of this, well, that's just your interpretation or that's just your opinion. No, this is God's interpretation and God's opinion, so obey it. Live the gospel. And finally, proclaim it. Proclaim the gospel. Say again, if we were even a fraction as passionate about the gospel as we are about our political opinions or our COVID opinions or our sports opinions, God would change this world. Share the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you drew us to yourself placed Christ's righteousness on our accounts, cleansed us of our sin, gave us an eternity with you, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the ages to come, you might show what is the height and depth and length and breadth of your love for us. Lord, help us not to be ashamed of that, but to joyfully and boldly proclaim it. Help us not to give in to this world or the subtle arguments of this world. The arguments coming from both left and right. Lord, help us instead to be founded on your word. To love your kingdom above all else. Help us to stand for you. Thank you for the power to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.